Coming up this evening on NTD Business. Over 400,000 jobs added last month. The unemployment rate also hit a new pandemic low. Senator Elizabeth Warren calls for a central bank digital currency. What are the pros and what are the cons? Chinese property developers in the spotlight again. Trading of their shares suspended in Hong Kong today. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Paul Graney here live from New York City. U.S. job growth rose steadily again in March. Wages went higher and the unemployment rate fell. American employers added 431,000 jobs last month with leisure and hospitality adding the most. Here's the president. Jobs and unemployment are not just another statistic. They go directly to the core of what the economy represents. The ability for hardworking Americans to live with dignity, support their families, and build a better life for their children. The unemployment rate fell to 3.6%. That's the lowest since February 2020. Businesses are also raising pay. Nearly half of American small businesses say they upped wages last month. Overall wages rose 0.4% for the month and 5.6% over the past year. But inflation is near 8% for the year, according to the CPI. That means real wages actually fell for the year. Inflation could be forcing more people back to work, too. 420,000 workers joined the labor force. That's as states like Iowa, West Virginia, and Kentucky are cutting the length of time you can receive unemployment benefits for. For example, from 26 weeks to less than 10 weeks. So joining us with the lowdown in the jobs market is ZipRecruiter's chief economist, Julia Pollock. Julia, great to see you again. Uh, congratulations on the birth of your, your beautiful baby. Uh, strong, job, <laughs> strong jobs report. It looks like still we have more jobs and there are people willing to, to fill them. I think what caught my attention this morning is the DHS are going to issue 35,000 new seasonal worker visas, H-2B visas. Uh, for for the upcoming season. How do you think that's going to help employers? So we have the tightest labor market on record. There are more than 5 million more job openings than unemployed workers. And there are industries that really rely on immigrant labor, uh, such as healthcare and nursing homes, where, for example, there are uh, usually plenty of caregivers from places like the Philippines. Those countries throughout the pandemic have sent Nobody. Right? Consulates have been closed. Uh, there have not been normal numbers of, of immigrants. That has caused severe staffing shortages in certain industries in particular, and this could offer some relief, although it's a pretty small number. It's something that didn't really get much media coverage, I felt, during the pandemic for whatever reason. How long do you think before we see the effects of this start to iron itself out? Well, I think it's going to take quite a while because we are in a, a really huge hole when it comes to sort of legal visa immigration. Uh, you know, in 2015, 2016, we had more than a million people enter the country each year. Uh, during the pandemic, 200,000 uh, last year. So uh, a very, very, very huge, enormous decline at a time when demand for labor is white hot and uh, labor supply uh, only sort of recovered slowly. That said, Labor supply is picking up quite rapidly now. We are seeing kind of a full and healthy return of workers to the labor force. The prime age labor force is actually bigger than it was before COVID. Um, and overall, we're even seeing the groups with the largest sort of exodus from the workforce starting to come back, like retirees. Interesting. 
Uh, are they coming back into physical stores, physical offices, or are they working from home? We see the Google ex-HR chief saying that this work-from-home hybrid model is not going to work. Bosses want people back in the office. You think workers are ready for this? I think companies and leaders can say all they want, but the market is going to tell them what they'll have to do. And here are a couple of key stats to keep in mind. You know, on ZipRecruiter, we look at what job seekers want all the time in real time, and 62% of job seekers are looking for remote work. 20% only want remote work, 42% would prefer it. And there are very good reasons for that. Uh, the average remote worker saves 70 minutes a day uh, on commuting and preparing for work. They use 30 minutes of that time to do more work. Uh, so companies actually should see this as a win-win. Uh, they see productivity go up 5%. They see their employers happy to accept lower wages because employees view this uh, remote work option uh, equal to a uh, an 8% pay increase. So it can save companies money, they can be more productive, it can expand diversity because it's particularly popular among women and minorities. I think it's a no-brainer and I think the market is going to tell companies what they have to do. On that point, how are workers kind of combating inflation in their negotiations? Any interesting trends you're seeing? So the main reason workers are demanding higher wages right now is because they have leverage and this is such a tight labor market. They have outside opportunities that are very attractive. Uh, more than 50% of employed job seekers who want to switch jobs tell us they know that if they were to tell their employer that they're going to resign, their employer would beg them to stay and counter an outside offer. That is the kind of leverage and confidence we have not seen in this labor force in the United States in decades. Um, inflation is only adding to what workers are demanding and, and hoping for, uh, and it's also causing them to stick to their guns about remote work. When gas prices are so high, when the cost of commuting is so high, uh, workers are going to hold out for remote opportunities or leave companies that require them to come back to the office five days a week. Interesting times. Julia Pollack, ZipRecruiter, appreciate it. Thank you. Good talking to you. You may want to meet with your boss soon about that raise. Inflation is set to cost American families $5,200 this year on average. That's over $400 a month. These are Bloomberg estimates. Bloomberg did say if you've saved some money during the pandemic, you may be able to weather the storm, obviously. If not and money is running out, it just says you'll have to go back to work. Inflation began to hit home after lockdowns fractured supply chains. Then authorities stepped in with massive stimulus packages to try to patch things up. Since then, we've seen decades-high price increases all around the world, basically. And regular Americans, they think things will only get worse. Sorry to be such a downer on a Friday. Let's talk pizza. Apparently, pizza in New York City should never cost more than a subway ride. But apparently, that rule has been broken. Anthony's Phil Zoe has what you need to know. Hey, have you heard of the pizza connection or the pizza principle? It's apparently an economic law in New York City that states the cost of a slice of pizza is the same cost for a single subway ride. But that might be changing. When a New York slice of pizza cost around $1 in the late 80s and early 90s, so did the cost of a single subway ride. When a slice went up to $2 in the 2000s, so did the subway fare. The cost of pizza did go up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
in college I was surviving on the dollar slices and then they went to like a dollar fifty. I want to know why. Is it inflation? Right now, the average cost of a New York slice has gone up to over $3 across the city, while the subway fare is staying at $2.75. At one of the highest rated pizzerias in Midtown Manhattan, New York Pizza Suprema, their famous slices used to be $4, but it went up to $4.50 about a year ago. Uh, yeah, sometimes it gets pretty crazy, but we usually uh, end up uh, not doing our thing and finish it on time. But that's not stopping pizza fans from lining up. Joe's Pizza is extremely decent. Dollar Pizza is typically better than gourmet pizza. Max. Ingredients for pizza have been climbing over the years. Cheese is up 10% in the last three years. But pizza flour used for pizza dough has gone up the most, rising almost 12% in the past year alone. Some pizza shops, like this one, unfortunately, are no more. Phil Zoe, NTD News, New York. And I'm sorry to tell you, but inflation's coming for another American favorite too, beer. The conflict in Ukraine means less grain bound for the United States, so get ready for higher prices. Diddy Shaw Marshall has more. American grain right here. Dextrin, Carapils. Beer prices. The latest collateral damage from Russia's invasion of Ukraine and inflation. The Four City Brewing Company in New Jersey says it'll have to raise prices in its tap room soon. Grain has gone up, I mean, 18, 20, oh. 25 cents a pound. So when you're talking about hundreds, maybe a thousand pounds per batch. You're, it's a lot of money, and we're trying to keep our prices. You know, we haven't raised our prices, but it's still it's a challenge. Ukraine is one of the world's leading exporters of grain and vegetable oils, but since Russia invaded Ukraine, has suspended exports of rye, oats, millet, buckwheat, salt, sugar, meat, and livestock, and introduced export licenses for wheat. It's at least going to be one to two dollars more, probably for, per pour in the tap room. Uh, probably a couple of dollars on each case per keg. Yeah, nothing extreme, but we have to cover our costs because the, the costs have been pretty significant. Of the 60% of American adults who drink alcohol, 39% prefer to drink beer. I think the problem in the Ukraine is going to ripple, you know, and it's not going to affect us right right now, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to affect us in general over the time. and. It, Inflation, you know, we're going to be forced to raise our prices, but again, you don't want to price yourself out of the market. It's a fast-growing industry. The number of breweries in the United States has more than doubled since 2014. As of 2020, there was nearly 9,000 breweries in America alone. The co-owner of Four City Brewing Company says, in the past three months, the cost to make beer has gone up about 25 cents per can. The brewery's biggest margin is in their tap room which is where they hope to recoup some of their losses. Sean Marshall, NTD News. And car maker Honda has a plan for broken supply chains. It's just going to sell older cars. Cars that are up to 10 years old up until now as part of its certified pre-owned program. Five years was the max. But the car maker says it's facing, quote, severe inventory shortages. Now the new expansion covers Honda itself as well as its luxury Acura vehicles. The used cars will come with benefits like limited warranty, complimentary oil change, and emergency roadside assistance. Maybe they'll need it. 
And joining us live to discuss all things car sales is Adam Sims, CEO of Price Sims Auto Group in California. Adam, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Adam, you guys having to get creative to beef up your inventory and sales? Uh, we certainly have, and 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 you know, uh, you know, at the dealership level, we're we're beefing up our used car inventory. We're carrying a lot of nearly nearly new used cars as alternative to new cars due to shortages. How do the customers feel when they come in? Well, I'll tell you, it's it's interesting how resilient the consumer has been. We've gone from almost a hundred percent, you know, instant delivery with thousands and thousands of cars in stock to literally a dealership that would normally carry a thousand cars will have five, six, seven cars in stock. And as the trucks arrive, every single car is, is really is pre-sold. It's, it's an incredible time. You know, we've, uh, we've been at this for 40 years and we've never been in a situation where the demand has been very high and the supply has been so restricted. I was just looking at our final numbers for the first quarter and on the new car side in 2021, we'd sold 2,300 new cars. This year we're down 25% or we sold 1,700 cars. But that's not really the story. The story is we have deposits and pre-sold units totaling 4,000 units today, which will be coming in in the future. So uh, the market is much stronger than what it appears to be based on the current sales rate. But when are you expecting those cars to come in, Adam? You know, it's um, with some of the manufacturers, we represent 17 different brands. It's different with all of them. So some of them are arriving daily, weekly, monthly, or we don't know when they're going to restart the, the assembly lines to build these vehicles for our customers. Are they positive? Customers are positive. They seem to have adapted. They recognize that the inventory is not there. Uh, we've been holding the line at our manufacturer suggested retail price or a slight discount due to the delay. And, uh, you know, it's a lot more heavy lifting on our part to keep them informed at each step of the a process from the order to the cars being built, it's on a ship or it's on a train uh, to a logistics yard on its way to us. So we're having to really sort of support the customer with information from order all the way to delivery. So sales are down, prices are up. Is it a good time to be a dealer? Uh, it's it's a very interesting time to be a dealer. You know, we we've always struggled. We've been deep discounters for many many years. We've gotten some of our margin back that we had lost over the years through commoditization and basically oversupply. But we've gone to a point of too little supply. We really think we're looking forward to the next three quarters will be a slight build in inventory. But candidly, we're getting news every day of of COVID outbreaks. Yeah. Uh, commodity shortages, uh, what's going on with Ukraine and Russia is affecting many parts of the supply chain. So while we have visibility, there's surprises that we're, we're being informed about daily. So things are getting better or they're getting worse? They're getting better. They're getting better. I mean, I think we, we don't know what we don't know, basically. You know, we were dealing with, uh, you know, a, a, a war, uh, COVID, and uh, an earthquake last week. So we don't know what's going to be in store for us next week. Incredible. Uh, with gas prices up, you're getting more inquiries on electric vehicles? We're in Northern California, all around the Bay Area. And 
the electric car is white hot for us. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of orders. We represent the new Polestar brand with two retail locations. Both of them are selling almost 100 vehicles a month right now. So it gives you some idea of how hot the electric market is. It's the future, right? It certainly is here, but it's, uh, it's here today. It's not in the future. It's, it's here today for us. There you go. Adam Sims, Price Sims. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Talk soon. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. If you're not ready for an EV and you have your eye in a new gas guzzler, take note. The Biden administration wants all new gas-powered vehicles made to higher fuel efficiency standards. That means they'll drive longer on the same amount of fuel, cutting emissions. Transportation Secretary says the new standard will help Americans save on gas. And the benefits are going to be real for drivers across America. Starting in model year 2024, when these standards take effect, Americans buying a new vehicle will spend less on gas than they would have if we hadn't taken this step. The new standards are more aggressive than the Trump administration's. Automakers say they'll need to spend tens of billions of dollars to comply with the new rules. It'll cost about $100 billion for Detroit's big three alone. The agency in charge estimates it could save consumers $1,400 in fuel costs over the life of the vehicle, but it'll also increase the average cost of a vehicle by the same amount. The agency says it'll also increase penalties for car makers that don't meet the requirements. Ford and GM shares both down today, but overall markets were up. A good first day as we kick off the second quarter. The Dow up 140 points, 4 tenths of a percent. S&P 500 gained 15 points, 3 tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq rose 41 points, also three-tenths of a percent today. But stocks of over 30 companies traded in Hong Kong were suspended. Many of them were Chinese property developers. Just the latest sign, all is not well in China's massive property market. Anthony Don Ma has the story. The Hong Kong Stock Exchange Friday suspended a slew of property developers after they missed the deadline to submit their annual financial results. Brian McCarthy, chief strategist at investor consulting firm MacroLens, says the suspension raises questions about the developer's financial credibility. You know, I think what today's news shows us is that this is not an isolated problem, that there's widespread issues with the credibility of, uh, you know, the financials that are being produced by Chinese developers. The suspension means investors can no longer buy or sell the Chinese developers' shares on the stock exchange. I feel badly for any uh, investor who remains invested in the equity of Chinese property developers. It's, it's dead money uh, in, in the uh, equity of most of the Chinese property developers. I would, you know, harvest whatever you can because I, I think many of these stocks are going to be zero. And how is the health of the Chinese property market? The, the big issue is that the downturn in the Chinese property market is relentless at this point, and both Chinese authorities and market participants are still underestimating the, the damage this is going to do to Chinese, uh, the Chinese financial system and the degree to which this is going to be a dead weight on Chinese GDP growth for the foreseeable future. Chinese property firms halted on the Hong Kong exchange include major players like Kaiser Group, China Aoyuan Group, Sunshine 100 China Holdings, Fantasia, and Modern Land China. Don Ma, NTD News. 
And Senator Elizabeth Warren is putting her weight behind a central bank digital currency. She says it could improve many things that banks are doing wrong, but there are privacy concerns. Matthias Colin Fredrickson has more. Senator Elizabeth Warren wants the U.S. to have a central bank digital currency. You could have a digital wallet. You could move that um, digital currency back and forth between um, either individuals or uh, banks uh, potentially as easily as you might move uh, Bitcoin. Doug Schwenk is the CEO of Digital Asset Research. Schwenk says there's no perfect definition yet because the idea is so new. Elizabeth Warren says that a central bank digital currency can improve a lot of things that banks do wrong. Dave Schwartz is the president of the FIBA, an international banking association. Schwartz also supports having a central bank digital currency. So you would remove basically the physical currency from the marketplace, and this will allow it to move much quicker in terms of transmission. The cost will be much lower, and for banks, uh, it would be very helpful in terms of uh, anti-money laundering. Meanwhile, Senator Ted Cruz has introduced legislation that would ban the central bank from issuing this kind of currency to people. Cruz says it could be used as a surveillance tool, similar to what's happening in China right now. Frank Schwiel is the CEO of Cefelo, a Swedish crypto platform. Schwiel agrees that this would be a breach of privacy, but that it could also be viable. If it's married with the existing cryptocurrency uh, market, it could play a complementary role. And Doug Schwenk, the CEO of Digital Asset Research, says a central bank digital currency could potentially replace banks. Your retail bank needs customers that make deposits to be able to do the other services that, that it offers. If the central bank digital currency existed um, in the way that cryptocurrencies exist today, I could have a wallet on my phone and I wouldn't have any need to park that, uh, that digital currency with my local bank. Schwenk says this could happen, especially because interest rates are so low. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Still to come. The world's biggest fashion retailer gets a new boss, and it isn't just anyone. What's top on the to-do list? South Koreans flocking overseas for, quote, revenge travel after lockdowns. One American destination is especially popular. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. The world's biggest fashion retailer has a new boss, and it's the founder's daughter. Marta Ortega takes over as non-executive chairperson from Friday at Zara owner Inditex. She's the youngest child of billionaire founder Amancio Ortega. Now she'll have a more hands-on role than outsiders initially expected. 38-year-old will remain involved in managing fashion merchandise at Zara, as well as having roles in communication strategy and internal audits. On the top items in Ortega Jr.'s to-do list will be managing the challenge of surging inflation. It's likely to force Zara to increase prices. 
and eager to go on vacation and put the memories of lockdowns behind them, more than a thousand South Koreans have snapped up their packages for Hawaii. They were advertised by teleshopping channel CJ on Style. Jason Albano reports. Armed with a suitcase in one hand and boarding passes in another, Kim Ho-jun and his wife are more than ready for their first real holiday in more than two years. As they take off for Honolulu, they're joining a rush of South Koreans out for so-called revenge travel, giving into cravings for travel after lockdowns. I love traveling, but I've been very stressed because I couldn't go on a trip and didn't know when I would be able to go abroad again. I've waited a long time for this. It all began weeks ago when mandatory quarantine was scrapped for fully vaccinated travelers from most countries. Now there's a scramble to book trips abroad that had been delayed by restrictions. There was a brief moment last year where it was all lifted before limits came again in December. However, unlike last year, people now seem more eager to travel. Recent polls show people are less worried about catching the virus and increasingly see its prevention as out of their hands. A South Korean shopping channel, CJ OnStyle, said that in one hour on Sunday, it got some 2,800 orders for a Spain and Italy trip, amounting to more than $12 million. That comes just days after a more than $7 million sale for packages to Hawaii. In the case of last year's travel packages, which were made valid for two years, it was like we were selling expectations to customers, like dreams and hopes rather than actual travel package plans. But this time, with the exemption of quarantine for overseas arrivals, it's become possible to travel. Kim and his wife booked their tickets to Hawaii last minute. It's where they enjoyed their honeymoon six years ago. They're eager both to relive pre-2020 life and to put the memories of lockdowns behind. The one thing left to do is board their flight. As the latest from the NTD business team and myself, Paul Graney, can still catch NTD Evening News with Stephanie Cox. That's at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. For NTD Business, it's all for this week. Have a great weekend. Thanks as always for watching. We'll see you Monday.